Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, we'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 and Proverbs chapter 20. We began last uh, Wednesday night on a series that we've entitled How to Be Led by the Spirit of God. We've certainly taught it numerous times before, but it's something that's uh, it's one of those series, one of those teachings, and it's always good to uh, be refreshed on and go back over again and again. We have a chance to, of course, we're all growing, we're all learning. And so every time we teach this, uh, a new time that we teach it, we have an opportunity to add things that we've learned since the last time we taught. And I believe we ought to be growing consistently and constantly in the things of God. Amen. Romans chapter 8, verse 14, it says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Verse 16 tells us how he's going to lead us. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Then in Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 27, it says, The Spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. Another translation says the light or the lamp. The Spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. Now, candles were the only way they had to illuminate the darkness in their homes or when the sun went down and so forth. And uh, so modern-day translations will modernize the translation a little bit. Uh, If we were translating that today, we might say the the Spirit of the Lord is the electric light or the light bulb of the Lord. There's a modern-day paraphrase that says it in a little different way that, uh, that I think is real good. It says, the spirit of man is the guiding lamp of the Lord. I like that. I think that brings out a meaning, even though it's not completely accurate according to the words, the translation itself. It brings out the meaning that uh, the Holy Ghost is trying to convey. Now, if you're going to talk about being led by the spirit of God, you've got to establish the threefold nature of man. You've got to teach on the fact that man is the spirit. He has a soul and he lives in a body. And we tried to do some of that last Wednesday night. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23. Paul is uh, inspired by the Holy Ghost to define the makeup of man. We know that man is created in the image of God. Jesus told the woman at the well of Samaria in John 4, 24 that God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. But if man is a spirit, then what's the rest of his makeup? Again, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Paul said, And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He starts with the inside of man, the eternal part of man, and works his way to the outside, spirit, soul, and body. And we also looked over in uh, Luke chapter 16. And, uh, well, why don't you turn with me to Luke chapter 16. It's a story of... uh, Jesus tells the tale of, uh, I shouldn't use the word tale, that makes it sound like it's a fable, fictional story, but he tells us the real story of a rich man and Lazarus and what happened to them after they died. We'll start reading in verse 19. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores. Notice in verse 19 and 20, Jesus uses the word certain. That defines, that is telling us by definition that this cannot be a parable. Parable, A parable is something that stands for or illustrates or represents something else. He didn't say somebody represents or this story represents somebody like a rich man. He said there was a certain rich man. He said there was a certain beggar named Lazarus. 
and desiring to be fell from the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, talking about Lazarus. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Now notice verse 22. It came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Who was carried and who died? Well, we understand that the physical body died. But notice he, the the beggar, Lazarus himself, lived on. Then it tells us about the rich man. He also died and was buried. Well, we know when it's talking about being buried that he had a funeral. Talking about the burial of his body. But he continued to live. He continued to exist. Spirits live forever. We're created in the image of God and God is an eternal spirit. Every man's spirit will continue to live forever. The only question is, where will he spend eternity? So the rich man died, his body died, but he continued to live. And in hell, he lift up his eyes. So spirits must have eyes. These are not his physical eyes. His physical eyes are in the grave. But in hell, he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, the torment can't be physical torment because he doesn't have a physical body. So what's the torment? Well, it's some kind of pain. We'd have to conclude that it's either spiritual pain or soulish pain. But it's some kind of pain that would qualify or classify as torment. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. Notice spirits can speak. He lifted up his voice and cried out for Abraham. But also you need to realize something else. He recognized not only Abraham but Lazarus. So his mind is intact. His memory is operational. But Abraham said, Son, remember thou that thou in thy lifetime received good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he's tor- tormented, now he's comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. And then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou would send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren that he may testify unto them lest they also come into this place of torment. Now that tells us again that his memory is still intact. He remembers things that happened on the earth. He remembered his father's house. He remembered his five brothers. And he has concern for them. He cares about them. We'd have to say that's a function of the soul, wouldn't we? The soul is defined in scripture as the mind, the will, and the emotions. So we see his mind operational, which means his soul is functioning. We see his memories intact. That's a part of the soul as well. I think the torments has something to do, maybe not everything, but something to do with the torment that he's experiencing in the flame. And then he remembers and cares about his brothers. He wants Abraham to do something so his brothers don't come to hell. You know, it's so funny. Well, it's not funny. It's sad. But so many times people take positions that, and I'll just characterize it this way. I hope you know what I mean. They don't care about God. They don't care about the things of God. And their their attitude seems to be that if there is a life after death, then they'll spit in God's eye when they get there. 
But there's nobody in hell that wants to spit in God's eye anymore. There's only one concern that people in hell have, and that is for whoever they cared about that's still on the earth. They don't want them to come there. Do you realize how easy it would be for God to get everybody born again? All I'd have to do is pull the veil back on hell. But then it wouldn't be a matter of faith. It's faith that receives the things of God. Well, Abraham doesn't accede to his request. Abraham says in verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. In other words, the word of God is the way into heaven. He said, nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Now, he speaks of that in the past tense. He's speaking of Jesus, I believe. So for the sake of our discussion tonight, there's a lot of things we could talk about relative to this story. And I, I, since we've uh, opened the scripture to this passage, it would probably do us well to make a little bit of explanation. In the old covenant that Jesus is speaking to, that the rich man and Lazarus died under, there was no entrance into heaven. The entrance into heaven didn't come until Jesus made the way and opened the door for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. So there's a difference in this story and how things work today. Paul said concerning life after death, he said, to depart and be with Christ for the Christian is to depart and be with Christ. Well, there was no Christ to be with in that day under the old covenant. So for the Old Testament saints, who we call the Old Testament saints, those that were looking for and believing in the Messiah to come, they departed and went with Abraham. It was still called paradise. It was still a place of comfort. But the Old Testament, the Old Covenant believers departed and went, and went with Abraham. But for us, we depart to be with Christ. Now that's changed because the Bible says that at Jesus' resurrection, he preached to the saints in prison. Well, there's only one place that the saints could have been in prison, and that's in paradise, Abraham's bosom. He preached to the saints in prison, and then it says he led captivity captive, those that were captive in Abraham's bosom. And notice that Abraham even refers to the conditions that were in the place of paradise. He said there's a great gulf fixed between hell and Abraham's bosom. Nobody can travel from here to there, and nobody can travel from there to here. In other words, everybody is held captive in the location that they're in, whether it was hell or Abraham's bosom. But Jesus led captivity captive. When he went to heaven, he took them with him. Now there is no place of paradise. There'd be no reason for a place of paradise. There'd be no reason for Abraham's bosom. In this sense, I guess if you were with Abraham in heaven, you'd be in Abraham's bosom. You could consider that to be the same terminology. But you understand what I'm saying, I hope. I hope. So things are different now than they were back then. But notice, for the sake of our discussion tonight, Notice that both the spirit and the soul are eternal. 
Both the spirit and the soul are eternal. Well, if the spirit and the soul are eternal, that means that both the spirit and the soul make up the inward man. Paul talks about the inward man versus the outward man. He said the outward man is decaying or aging, but the inward man is renewed day by day. Well, he's got to be talking about the spirit and the soul. At least the potential for being renewed day by day is for the spirit and the soul. So both the spirit and the soul are eternal. But that brings up an interesting question then that we're going to have to address. And that is if both the spirit and the soul are eternal, what's the difference in the two? They can't be the same thing. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing asunder even to the dividing between spirit and soul. Well, if the spirit and the soul are the same, they couldn't be divided. If they were the same, then there'd be no reason for Paul to delineate or specify that man is a spirit, he has a soul, and he lives in a body. Now turn with me over to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, really what the thing I want to get across tonight, speak to this evening, is the difference in the spirit and the soul. And I believe, at least for me, this was one of the most important things that I've ever learned from the Scripture. It was really the key and is the key, not just for me but for anybody when it comes to spiritual development. Because so much of the church world doesn't know the difference between spirit and soul. They're doing things that are of the soul and they think they're of the spirit. I referred to James 4.24 a little bit earlier where Jesus said to the woman at the well of Samaria that God is a spirit and they that worship him in spirit or they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So much of what people think is spiritual worship is just the exercise of the soul. Again, the soul is defined as the mind, the will, and the emotions. Jesus didn't say those that worship God must worship him with the mind, the will, and the emotions. He said they must worship in spirit and truth. Listen to so much of the songs that the modern day church sings. Most of them are about how we feel about the circumstances that we're in. The circumstances of life. That's neither spirit nor truth. So you could sing a lot of the modern day songs all day long and you haven't even begun to worship God. Jesus defined the word of God as truth. He also said the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. So worshiping God in spirit must have something to do with worshiping according to the word. That's one thing I missed about the 70s and the early 80s. Because there was a movement where people were singing word songs. They were taking scriptures and making songs out of them. Now I'm sure those songs wouldn't be considered to be musically hip today. But boy, they were chock full of the word. They'd put you over in a crisis. Nowadays you get in trouble. Don't look for Christian radio to help you. They're going to talk about how bad the situation is that they're in. And how they feel about it. If we can't define and delineate between the spirit and the soul. Then we're going to pass up a lot of, of a lot. Pass up on a lot. 
of spiritual development through ignorance. Now, James 1.21, actually, I think I want to start in verse uh, 18. James is writing, he says, Of his own will begat he us. To begat means to be born of. Of his own will, he begot us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Anybody that's born of God has to be saved. He's got to be talking to Christians, right? Notice what he says to these Christians. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, calls them brethren, that means they're saved, part of the church. Let every man be swift to hear and slow to speak and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, to this end, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. No question he's talking to Christians and he's saying that these Christian souls have have not been saved. Well, if their souls aren't saved, what's happened to them? How'd they get into the church? How'd they get into the family of God? Second Corinthians five seventeen says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature or a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. What old things passed away? The spirit, the old spirit that was dead, hardened, dead unto God. What became new? The spirit of man. But notice the new birth does not affect the soul. Even though the soul is just as eternal as the spirit, it's just as much a part of the inner man as the spirit is. It continues to live after the body dies. Notice the new birth does not affect the soul of man. For this cause, I believe. That's why you can't find any scripture that says God will bear witness with your mind. Or your soul. You can't find any scripture that says the mind of man or the intellect of man is the lamp of the Lord. Because God doesn't live in your mind. He lives in your spirit. So what does he say? He says that we are to receive, we the Christians, church, believers, are to receive with meekness, that means to be teachable, receive the engrafted word which is able to save our souls there's the potential for our souls to be saved but that can only come by the word can only come by the word of god turn with me over to romans chapter 12 romans chapter 12 verse 2 paul's talking about the exact same thing using a little bit different terminology but notice he says and be not conformed to this world But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove. Word prove means to determine by experience. We could also translate it meaning to know. That you may prove or that you may know what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now what is this going to cause us to know the will of God? What is it that's going to cause us to experience the will of God? Being born again? No. You can be born again and never find the will of God past the new birth experience. There's only one thing that's going to bring us to the place where we know the will of God, and that's the renewing of the mind. And notice what it causes us to know, to know the will of God, to know the will of God. So much of the controversy in the church world 
For example, is healing for everybody? Does God sometimes bring sickness upon us to teach us? To sanctify us or for whatever other reason people use? Those questions are in the body of Christ for one and only one reason. And the Bible defines it right here in verse 2. There's only one reason that the church doesn't know the will of God. That's because their mind hasn't been renewed to the truth. And when you renew your mind to the truth by the word of God. Another way to say that might be retrain yourself to think according to what the Bible says instead of the way the world thinks. When the believer does that. Then all the questions about what's God's will. Vanish away. Then the only question a believer will ever have about the will of God might be the specific will of God for the, concerning his plan for their life. But you know as well as I do that a lot of the church world thinks that God brings sickness and uses sickness to teach us something, to teach his children something. Well, that's impossible. Because when you renew your mind to the word, you realize that Jesus bore our sicknesses and took our infirmities and with his stripes were healed just as surely as he bore our sins and iniquities. See, it'd be just as scriptural to say that God wants to teach you through sin as it would be to say that God wants to teach you something through sickness. Jesus took them both, sin and sickness. Well, do you know of anybody that would say God wants to teach you through sin? No, the whole church world, at least everybody that I know that names the name of Jesus as Savior, believes that the Bible meant it when it says resist sin. See, these questions are answered when you renew your mind to the truth. The will of God stops being a mystery. And I believe Paul is talking specifically here where he says, that the renewing of our mind transforms us from the way of the world, the way the world thinks, the way the world operates. It transforms us to know and experience the will of God. Now, David said something in Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is the Lord's shepherd, or the, the Lord is my shepherd psalm. He said something in one of the early verses of that psalm that I believe he's speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. Well, I know the whole psalm is inspired by the Holy Ghost, of course. But he really hits up on something. He said, the Lord restores my soul. Now, the word restore means to return from, return to a previous condition. Now, at what point in time was David ever at a place where his soul was in a better condition than at the time that he wrote the psalm? It's not like he got he was born a believer, and then fell like Adam did in the Garden of Eden. When he says the Lord restores my soul, what's he referring to? I believe he's speaking by the Holy Ghost, referring to the restoration of the soul to the condition, at least the potential of the restoration of the soul to the condition that it was before Adam fell. He restores my soul. If you go back and look at it or think about the things that uh, the Bible tells us about Adam and Eve falling in the Garden of Eden, you'll realize that the soul, both the soul and the body, are the things that are represented by Adam's response 
the spiritual death overtaking him. It says when they ate of the tree that they were forbidden to eat, the eyes of them both were open, and they saw that they were naked and they were ashamed. We've talked about before, it's not like clothes fell off of them. They'd been naked the whole time. But they saw the physical realm in a different way. And they experienced shame. Well, shame's not a spiritual emotion. It's a product of the soul. So they became aware of their physical condition, the physical surroundings in a different way than ever before. And their soul is operating in a different way than it ever had before. So they hid themselves from God. They sowed fig leaves and tried to hide themselves. What does that tell us? That tells us that the soul, their souls, had to have operated and functioned in a different way before the fall than after. The source of their knowledge was from the Spirit of God that dwelled within them, not from their experience. Well, when David wrote the psalm in Psalm 23, the Lord restores my soul, what's he talking about? He's saying that our minds can be renewed by the Word of God back to the original condition. Does that make sense? Now, one of the things that really helped me the single most thing that helped me is when I saw the Bible talk about the difference between the function of the spirit and the operation of the mind or the soul. We're all familiar with Romans, with uh, Proverbs, excuse me. We're all familiar with Proverbs chapter 3. Let me read to you Proverbs 3, 5. It's a verse I'm sure you're familiar with. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. I first remember hearing this verse in the Baptist church when I was maybe eight years old. I would hear it frequently. It was the um, one of the Sunday school teachers, one of the church leaders. This was their favorite verse of scripture. He had a son that was my age, and he and I were real good friends, and so I was around them all the time, and every time he had signed his name, to something he'd put Proverbs 3 5. He was always quoting the verse of scripture. It was one of the most, it was one of the scriptures that I became most familiar with as a young boy of anything that I can remember. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not to your own understanding. Now I remember from that, and I remember teaching in uh, Sunday school and things like that concerning this verse. I remember that there was one and only one thing that I got from that verse of scripture. And that was you couldn't depend on your own thinking to know the things of God. But they completely passed over the trust in your heart part. Now, I'm not finding fault. I'm not trying to criticize. I'm sure they taught all that they knew. But when I came to the place where I realized that trusting, the process of believing or having, had, having believed, was a function of the heart and not of the mind then that set me on a different path of study now that wasn't new information the bible says with the heart man believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made into salvation but most of us get saved because we think according to the word that was preached and we make a decision an act of our will the function of the soul to accept the truth that we've heard but the Bible talks about two entirely different operations. One function of the heart in believing 
or having believed. And the other in the soul concerning the understanding. When I saw that trusting and understanding were two different things, that set me on a study. It brought me to another verse of scripture, several verses of scripture actually, where it talks about wisdom versus understanding. You know, the the Bible says, what is it, Proverbs chapter 8, get wisdom with all that getting, get understanding. Wisdom is the principal thing. When the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30 that Christ has made unto every believer wisdom, why didn't every believer operate in it? If Jesus has made unto us wisdom, it's one of four things the Bible says in that verse that he's made unto us. One of them is righteousness. Well, every believer that is made righteous, righteousness is theirs whether they live up to it or not. But it's theirs. It dwells within them. It becomes who they are. Well, in the same way, wisdom has the potential to become who we are. Then why did never Christian operate in wisdom? And why is wisdom so hard for some people to access? They're saved. Wisdom is a function of their spirit. But why is it so difficult to access? You realize that it's not just wisdom, but understanding that makes us a success in life. Look with me over to, uh, let me give you a couple of these scriptures. There's a lot more of them that I'll take time to, uh, to look at. But it's a, it was one of the best studies, that, one of the most fruitful studies that I ever made in the scripture. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 23. It says, wisdom rests in the heart of him that has understanding. What does that mean? That means that wisdom is a function of the spirit. The heart's referring to the innermost part of man. Wisdom is a function of the spirit. Understanding is not. In almost every case, understanding is referring to the soul, the operation of the soul. So if we define it in those terms here, then it's saying wisdom rests in the heart of the man who has understanding, whose soul has been saved, whose mind has been renewed. Can you see that? Well, that would certainly fit with what Paul said in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you'll know what the will of God is. You couldn't operate in wisdom without knowing the will of God, could you? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom rests in the heart of of him that has understanding. But that which is in the midst of fools is made known. Proverbs chapter 9 verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the holy is understanding. So understanding the renewed mind comes through knowledge. Where do we get that knowledge? From the word. Another one that ministered to me was chapter 10 verse 13 in the lips of him that has understanding wisdom is found but a rod is for the back of him that is void of understanding in the lips of him that has understanding that's where you find wisdom in other words the words of a man's mouth who has a renewed mind 
will speak the wisdom of God. Well, again, that goes back to what we, re- what we referred to in pr- Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. With the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Jesus said, whatever you believe in your heart and say with your mouth, that's what you're going to have. What determines whether or not somebody is going to speak and have the will of God in their life? The knowledge which comes by the word of God and the mind that's renewed to it. Is this making any sense? Let me give you one more. Proverbs chapter 17. Verse 24, wisdom is before him that has understanding. And notice how it refers to it. It refers to understanding as something that you gain, something that you get. If it goes back to what we said before, Christ has made unto us wisdom. 1 Corinthians one thirty. He's made unto us wisdom. In other words, that's a part of your heart. That's a part of your spirit. That's a part of the old things passing away and all things becoming new. The wisdom of God rests on the inside of every believer. But not every believer accesses it. it. What determines whether or not we access it or gain access to it? Only one thing the Bible says, and that is having or gaining understanding. Again, we're defining understanding as the renewed mind, the saved soul. When you begin to renew your mind to the word, the wisdom of God will begin to come out of your spirit through the words of your mouth. And unless you do renew your mind to the word, the wisdom of God will be dormant in the life of every believer or any believer that fails to do so. then where is spiritual development? It's in the soul. It's in the renewing of the mind. See, the more of the word of God you learn, the more experience you gain in walking in the word, you don't get bigger and bigger in spirit. You add experience to your faith. But spiritual development is through the soul. It's through the renewing of your mind to the word. God doesn't add more to your spirit the more the word you learn. You just gain access to what's already been placed there. You know where the Bible says that we're complete in Christ? I think that means a lot more than we've ever given it credit to me. Everything you'll ever need is already there. We just need to gain access to it. Well, that's what we need, Pastor Mike. We need to have special meetings, prayer meetings, so that God will give us whatever we need to gain access to what he's placed there. It doesn't take special prayer. It takes renewed mind. It takes the knowledge of what he's placed within you and the acceptance of that knowledge, the thinking in line with that knowledge, and the acting on that knowledge. If you're like me, you're aware that the Bible seems to say that we've got a lot more than we seem to think that we have or that it might seem that we would have. Why is that? Well, it's not because God made a mistake on his end. 
It's for one and only one reason. That is, we haven't renewed our mind to who we really are. Are you out there? No wonder James said by the Holy Ghost, receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. It's able to save your souls. Whether or not it does is up to you. Determines, it's determined by the degree to which you receive it. No wonder Paul said in Romans 12 verses 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God which is your reasonable service. Those translations read that, which is your spiritual worship. Then he says in verse 2, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Notice there's a transformation that takes place. Paul wrote to the church, and he chastised them because he said they were walking as mere men. He's writing to believers, writing to Christians. He's saying you Christians are walking on a lower level of experience, a lower level of life, lower quality of life. You're walking like men who aren't even saved. How is that possible if God has made all things new from within? Because they hadn't been transformed by the renewing of the mind. They look just like the world. They act just like the world. They talk just like the world. They think just like the world. Not because they're not saved. Because they haven't renewed their mind and been transformed by the renewing, by that knowledge that comes through that renewal process. So he says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you may prove or know, experience what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. One of the most startling statements in the Bible is contained in these two verses. Paul is telling the church by the Holy Ghost that the new birth does nothing to affect the body and does nothing to affect the soul. That's left for us to do. The greatest need of the body of Christ is presented bodies and renewed minds. And unless we do that, we're not going to partake of any of the the blessings that God has already made available to us in Christ Jesus. Peter wrote to the church that God has given us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be able to be partakers of the divine nature. Able to be partakers. He didn't say it was automatic because you're saved. And when he talks about divine nature, is he talking about the new birth? No, he's talking about living out the blessings and the benefits of the new birth. And it all comes through the word of God. Every bit of it comes through the word of God. I would encourage you, if you don't already do this, I would encourage you to embark tomorrow. Start tomorrow morning. And start a journey where you're putting the word of God in your mind in a systematic manner. Daily, to gain knowledge of who you are in Christ, to speak who you are in Christ, and to act like you are who the Bible says you are. Now, daily Bible readings are good. I do them myself. I have for the last 30 years. 
But I would encourage you to find something, a, a subject that interests you. And study the Bible by subject. Make a part of your knowledge who you are in Christ according to subjects. And not just according to reading the Bible. Trying to read it through one time a year or anything else. Like I said, those are great Bible readings, great Bible plans. I do it myself. But you begin to grow spiritually by leaps and bounds when you retrain yourself to think according to what the Bible says by subject. That way you learn what God's will is concerning healing. Then you can learn what God's will is concerning your righteousness. Then you can learn what God's will is concerning your provision and go from subject to subject to subject. Don't take just a little shallow swipe at it. Go deep in the subjects that interest you. It'll transform your life. Amen. Say it with me. The Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. Now say this. My mind is being renewed by the word of God so that I live up to who Jesus has made me to be. I am more than a conqueror because that's how Jesus made me. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.